This episode of the DDK Show is brought to you by EliteJewels.com, your one-stop shop for fantasy esports. Pick your favorite players, earn points, and perhaps you can earn some prizes as well. Over $100,000 has already been won. You can use the code JEWELS, that's D-U-E-L-S, when you deposit and earn your first $5 free. You must be 18 years or older. Just even in my life, I tried to just do everything the most efficient way possible. Because the key now is like you've got to that level, and that's awesome. Let's keep you here. In Counter-Strike, so many of the things are in the timing, right? Sometimes one second is way too much. Because I feel like some of my persona in Counter-Strike changed who I was as a person. Oh, what? Jumping double from cold! Hello, ladies and gents. Welcome back to the podcast. Today I had a simply fantastic and very enjoyable conversation with Valence. Now Valence has a background in the tech world, so we definitely dived into that. Worked at Tesla and Google for a short stint. And we also dived into coaching. Obviously he was a part of the Cloud9 team that won that Boston Major. So that's a great talking point. We also went over various elements of sports psychology and performance, as well as you know general issues in the esports world when it comes to coaching a team or you know the state of esports at the moment, and so much more. There's there are some good tidbits here as well if you're an aspiring professional player, and you know, Valence you know, talks about some of the things that you should be doing to increase your chances at success and and what some of the great players do to achieve success. And you know, we also talk about, of course, his role at Evil Geniuses because he has since left Cloud9 and now he is leading the data science division over at Evil Geniuses. And that's his background in, in data science and doing analytics and so on. So there's so much value he as an individual provides any team that he's on. And it was a pleasure finding out exactly what he's been up to and you know, some more about his history and his thoughts on the general state of Counter-Strike. Okay, Valens, thanks for joining me for the podcast. I don't know why it took me so long to even have the idea to have you on until I saw you in person when you're in the ECS studio. And I was like, holy shit, why haven't I already spoken to this guy on the podcast? So thanks for, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I was super excited. Always, always a pleasure to talk with you, Dan. Yeah, you just, uh, you just came back from holiday and there's been lots of changes. And uh, I think, you know, you have a really interesting career inside and outside of CS and now you're kind of doing a mixture of things, but you know, before we get into all of that, um, you know, we were just talking a little bit, uh, you know, before I, uh, started recording, but, uh, yeah, you just went to Florida for a couple of weeks. When was the last time you actually had a vacation, which was, you know, you traveling to a foreign destination that wasn't <laughs> actually Counter-Strike related? <laughs> I mean, it's been definitely a few years. I think, I think the closest we got was actually that ECS event in Cancun. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, it was yeah. uh, back in end of 2017. Uh, yeah, that was that was definitely fun. But obviously, we were there to for, for business, uh, taking care of business. And yeah, this was definitely the first time in at least the last three years. I want to say that's awesome. So, so how was it? Did you get uh, did you get that kind of um, like that guilt of like, oh, I should be working? Like, you can't switch out of work <laughs> mode, or like, how did it feel? Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously, because I I made the transition and like it was announced that I was. Uh, I was on Evil Geniuses now, so in that aspect of it, you know, they were they were super super nice about it. They knew my plans and they're willing to work around it. But definitely that that guilt was setting in. But at the same time, I think it's good to to disconnect and come in 
a brand new position, brand new place to work, surrounded by new people and just excited to be there. And uh, yeah, so I think I think uh, that's that's a great lead in to to kind of like one of the the parts of this conversation, which is obviously very interesting. So you've you've gone to EG, but it's a transition where you know you're not the the Counter Strike coach. You know, so how would you describe your role with EG? Yeah, I think this is kind of what was my plan. Uh, to be honest, maybe like a month or two after the Boston major. So this is kind of you know, 18 months, almost a little bit longer, actually, at this point in the making, I wanted to transition from coaching to full time kind of data science work to help support all of the games within the organization, obviously, before it was cloud nine. And now it's EG. So this was kind of my plan. Uh, Coaching was supposed to be kind of a temporary thing initially leading into kind of fully fledged uh, analytics work across not just Counter Strike, but all games. Uh, So that's kind of Finally, at this point, I have the right structure around me, uh, as well as kind of the the distractions of actually coaching the team is not there, no back and forth anymore from that front either. So this is kind of where I want to be at this stage. And you know, speaking of data science, um, so wasn't it uh, the case that you had a kind of small period of work with Google? You know, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, definitely. So I think there's actually. If I think back to kind of where I wanted to go down this data science path, it's actually even a step before Google. It was at Tesla. Uh, And that was kind of back in late 2012. And I had just done my master's uh, in in electrical engineering, which was still a combination of kind of like hardware work as well as software work. And I wasn't yet sure kind of which direction I wanted to take uh, when it comes to kind of work. But at Tesla, I mean, that was the first time where at that time, the Model S wasn't released yet. I think we had the Roadster out, which is the coupe version. And there was all this electric vehicle data coming in that no one had ever seen before. Because Tesla was obviously like the, one, of the, one of the first to kind of get electric vehicles out on the road. So I think uh, at that point, there was a huge need for people that were willing to work with data that they've never seen before and be able to come up with some cool applications of how to work with that type of data. So kind of my job there was to proactively using the data that was coming in from the cars that were kind of driving, being driven all over the road. Uh, data was coming back to us anonymously. And obviously, you know, you could opt out as a customer if you had wanted to. Uh, but using that data to proactively figure out if there was something wrong with the car before the user and the driver actually experienced it. So we called it kind of proactive health analytics. Uh, and no one had ever tried that before in the automobile industry uh, because no one was really tech savvy or as tech savvy as Tesla wanted to be. So I think that's kind of where my first taste of like, oh, like there's a bunch of data here that no one has seen before. What cool things can you do with it? Start getting that train of thought running is kind of where the data science aspect of my career kind of came from. It must have been, I mean, my impression at least, um, getting a job with Tesla at that point, obviously, as you say, like the company was so young um, and and the electric cars that that they were making, you know, as you say, like it was a brand new thing effectively in the way, in the vision that, that Tesla had as a company at that point. They must have been pretty exclusive in terms of the hiring process, surely, or, or how did that work? Yeah, it was, it was a running joke that I think, I think Tesla was just kind of uh, where you would go once you were done with Stanford because uh, physically located as well, I think the Stanford campus was like a mile and a half away from the Tesla campus. 
So literally I, at that point, I think it was like a kind of like an arms race of who can get people coming out of Stanford and Berkeley, which were like the two big universities in that area uh, between like Tesla, which was like the hot new startup at the time. And like obviously the traditional companies like Microsoft, Google, where I obviously ended up later, IBM, you know, all the all the Silicon Valley, big, big companies that were trying to get everyone in uh, on their on their teams. So, yeah, it definitely was exclusive. But at the same time, I think when you were there, it, it felt very kind of just like, hey, like everyone wants everyone has like a single vision. I saw Elon Musk walking around every single day. He we didn't even have a cafeteria at that time. So it was just like people would get food truck. Uh, you know, lunches and like come back and sit and like, you you know, the table over or even sometimes the table with us, it's just Elon Musk and the CTO. And like, yeah, I think that aspect of it kind of, it, it kind of was humbling as well that these guys were willing to kind of get their, get their hands dirty and, and just kind of mingle with everyone else because they just wanted to see their company succeed as well. But I think that aspect of it was really cool getting in at a company at a, you know, much before they were like, you know, at this point, they probably have hundreds of thousands of employees, including people that work in like the, the Gigafactory and stuff. So definitely, definitely a humbling experience. Yeah, that's, it's, it's kind of crazy to think because bringing it to, I mean, you kind of sound like a normal person in, <laughs> in, the, in terms of with esports, <laughs> a lot of people, you know, one of the, the jokes is a lot of the people that you know, work in esports, it's like because they failed at everything else. <laughs> it's like a pessimistic way that some people uh, uh, talk about it. And I, I know for some people that's true. For myself, you know, it, it was definitely esports was the thing that um, was kind of there for me when everything else wasn't going very well. And I was able to you know, capitalize on that uh, nicely. But but you had all these options, um, presumably, of course, you know, uh, you know, and before we, you know, we go, go into all of that, um, you know, what was it that made you transition away from Tesla? What was what, what happened there? Yeah, I think I think uh, there there is a couple things that when you go to a, a school like Stanford that you're kind of it's kind of ingrained into your philosophy. One of them being uh, at some point in your life, you should try to build your own thing, build your own business, kind of the entrepreneurial spirit that they kind of develop within their students. Uh, so I think from Tesla, the, the, my, my next step from there was to actually kind of build out something of my own. So that's kind of where I went to kind of just doing kind of like freelance data science work also kind of helped build a company from from ground up as as a very early stage startup at the time uh, and i did kind of that kind of thing for a while and that's actually at the same time where i started to play counter-strike csgo because late 2012 early 2013 is kind of when it was starting to take off a little bit you know like the major the first majors are starting to happen in 2013 and things like that so i i think the timing just kind of worked out because i i did not touch gaming at all during my four years of undergrad and my two years of my master's at all. So for those six years, I, I barely touched CS at all. And those six years from like 2006 to 2012 were also kind of the period of time where like Source was kind of big, C you know, 1.6 was dying, but CSGO hadn't yet been released. So I got kind of lucky because if you, as you know, I mean, to be successful in gaming, it kind of starts when you're super early, you know, your prime years of playing is like, you know, between 14 and, and 20 or so it seemed. And and I missed out on all that because that's when I was basically in in college. So uh, it was fun to kind of see how far I could take or how how, how far I could get. I I should say in Counter Strike uh, because it was a new game, CS:GO at the time, and it just the timing worked out. I switched to kind of freelance work. Uh, I had more time to just play. The schedule my schedule was my own. I kind of made it my own. So a lot of time to play CS:GO. Some of the most fun years those those couple of years I would say from like 
you know, 2013, mid 2013 to mid 2015, definitely some of my most fun I had after all my education was done and, and uh, did my own work as well. So definitely good times. It's, uh, it's really interesting too, because as you say, like the, the timing does sound like it was perfect. Um, I, compl- I completely, completely get what you're saying there. And, and, uh, but yeah, it's interesting in terms of, you know, the mind that you're bringing into CS with all the education that you'd done, you, there must've been so much stuff that you were thinking about in terms of, I wish we could have this or see this because in terms of data analytics, even now, I mean, think cool things are being done, but it does feel like we're, we're only really scratching the surface and no one's really figured it out quite yet. How to exactly like what, what uh, kind of algorithms you'd want to use or what kind of formulas you'd, you'd want to use in terms of. Um, when you're passing like huge amounts of data, what's actually important? How do we display it? You know, what insights are actually meaningful or can, can translate on the pro level? Like all these things are quite new. So, so it, you know, you must be, I mean, it, I think we're really starting to get a good idea with, with the background that you provided us, um, kind of why you're, you're kind of perfect for, um, for this role. So, you know, what, did you ever have any business ideas or did you ever th- feel like you wanted to start analytics platforms yourself, um, as you started to get more into the world of CS? So I think that's a great question because that's that's like a question that I asked myself. Uh, I, I think at that kind of mid 2015 timeframe, that's also where I I for a while I think my last pro team, you know, when I was actually playing pro was Complexity, and at that point I was released from Complexity and I wanted to start full time at Google. That was like I think late 2015, and that's the kind of that was I think the the probably fork in the road for deciding, hey, do I want to go continue into esports and do something kind of more revolutionary there that no one is really doing yet? Or do I want to go this traditional uh, road of, of Google? So the, the, the answer I came up, came to at that point was, well, let me do this Google thing. And <laughs> funnily enough, I think I, I want to say maybe like a few months into my Google position, you know, things were going great. But then I got a call from Automatic at the time. And I, I was his teammate for a long time. He was in the complexity lineup that I was actually playing for as well. Um, and he was like, hey, I'm thinking of making this team. Uh, TSM reached out to us to build an all-NA team. Uh, we need a coach. And I was just thinking to myself, coach, okay, like what can a coach bring to Counter-Strike? And do I, you know, do I want to be doing that? Is it worth my time kind of thing? So here's kind of the, the second fork in the road uh, that, that was like a big decision point for me because I thought to myself, okay, in one point, I can work at Google. Google has like this 20% project thing where you can spend 20% of your project, uh, 20% of your time every week doing whatever you want. So I basically used that time to do this coaching thing. So it was like a part-time coaching for TSM and still full-time at Google at the time. And during that process of just coaching back then as well, uh, as you probably remember, coaches could actually talk during the entire game. Uh, so you, most coaches would be calling and that's the type of coach I was. So I was having a lot of fun there. and. It, I like kind of this idea popped in my head is to really understand what you can do in Counter-Strike and even just esports in general with the data that you have, you really need to be understanding this game at a super high level. And the only way to really do that is one, if you've played it a lot, or two, you're, you're watching a bunch of really good players, how they're communicating, watching how they're playing, and just kind of being part of that ecosystem before you understand exactly what analytics what insights would be beneficial to a professional team. So again, this is kind of like timing worked out great. Uh, the, the circumstances worked out in my favor in the sense because I was like, okay, I want to do something with data in esports. Uh, I'm working at Google right now. 
but I can get all, the, all this valuable experience kind of through TSM coaching and, and later on, obviously, Cloud9. Uh, so let me do that, which will be a natural transition for me to kind of figure out what do pro teams need and then build kind of my own product, which whether that was through an organization or, or you know, individually to help support Counter-Strike through analytics. So that was kind of my pathway uh, decision-making decision a little bit. And what were some of the main takeaways um, I, you know, with your time at Google in terms of just the way that they did things or maybe things that you, you picked up that you maybe wouldn't have picked up elsewhere? Yeah, definitely how they see, they had, these, they had this concept called objective and key results. They're called OKRs. And it, you, you would make them kind of at the beginning of the quarter and decide on, okay, these are the things I want to complete in the next three months. This is how you would measure if I was successful or not. And obviously decide, hey, is it worth investing my time or my money or you know, Google's money, I should say, into continuing this after the quarter? That, that kind of structure of deciding, hey, don't just like go for moonshots that, are, that sound really cool and you know, invest a bunch of time into if you don't have any way to measure what success looks like, what are, what's a win condition? Right. So I think that element of thinking Google does really well, or at least my team at Google did really well. My manager kind of uh, was, was a great example of kind of how do you turn moonshots or cool ideas into concrete results that you can track and measure. And that is something that bringing into coaching for Counter-Strike, as well as data analytics for Counter-Strike and other games is huge because you, you, can, you can do unlimited amount of things as a coach, as, a, as an analyst, as, uh, with the data you have for eSource. But what will help teams? What will help pro teams? What will help amateurs? Those are separate things. And they're all good things, but they're separate. And if you mix them, you might grow into issues where you're telling a pro player that, hey, his peaking is, the way he's peaking is not good. It's not efficient. When that's the only way he knows how, that's a habit. You can't be changing stuff like that or even suggesting stuff like that to, to players and, and expect to be met with no resistance. So I think kind of knowing what is success and how you should be framing success for different types of pro teams and different types of teams and players and people from, per, from a personality perspective as, as well was something that Google helped a lot with, kind of helping me define uh, myself. That's the, I, I, love, uh, I love that concept. Um, I, I'm really, I'm really aware and uh, big into the idea of of understanding that there is the social environment that's got to be navigated expertly as well, and and that everything needs to kind of be adjusted um, to each unique case. And I think that's something that's very nuanced. And so it's kind of cool that you, the way that you got that experience was from Google, from that kind of tech background. Um, and, and I'd like to ask also um, that actually the same question. Um, but of your time at Tesla as well, given that especially that they are uh, definitely a, a different company to, <laughs> to most, I think it's fair to say. You know, what, what were your takeaways uh, from them? Yeah, uh, fr from Tesla, I, I think a lot of a lot of my big takeaways and experience was one on one hand, what is the coolest thing you can do with this data? So thinking about the moonshots, what are those moonshots? What if you have a bunch of data that, that says this and, and gives you this uh, information about a car in that case, uh, well, what are the cool things you can do with it? So being able to kind of translate just data, boring data, right? They're just numbers at the end of the day to something that you could do that's interesting, that people can find value from, a business can 
you know, potentially use as a revenue stream, right? That kind of path in making those connections is something Tesla, I think, was instrumental in for, for me because you need to be able to know what you want to do, but also why that brings value and how you can make money from it at the end of the day. And that's not, that's not easy. That's a skill that you, have, that you have to learn. I mean, it was, a, it was definitely something I didn't know going into Tesla. Uh, I just knew how to code. I obviously, you know, I loved electric vehicles and cool technology, sure. And I knew how to code. I was an engineer, but how does that bring business value, right? So thinking along the, time, uh, along the lines of a, a small company that's trying to get big, doing something that no one has really even tried before, and the ones that have tried have failed, uh, and, you know, see where they are now at this, at this point from where they were back in 2012. I think that aspect of it, I'm not surprised at all that they were successful because of their mentality was always like, hey, we need to know how to bring money in, but do it in a cool way. So that, you know, people are excited about this product. They, I think their motto internally for a while was, uh, maybe this was even external, but Elon Musk always said, we're not in the business of making the best electric car. We're in the business of making the best car that just happens to be electric. So I think that, that kind of mindset it, it definitely flowed down all the way from engineers to, to sales and, and marketing everything. Do you think there's anything um, in your time from, from uh, in your experiences with both of those companies that would be analogous or comparable to directly to the competitive environment of, you know, you, you know when you're placing yourself as a coach uh, behind a professional counter-strike team, are there any, um, I, I guess to rephrase the question is that sounds a bit ambiguous. Um, are there any ways that, you know, you looked at things in the tech world when you're, you know, spending time there that, you know, you, you can take it directly across to improving your team competitively, whether that be, you know, mindsets or approach, um, when it comes to making things more efficient in terms of practice or, or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think, I think definitely yes. And one of the first things I tried to do was to kind of take those learnings and apply it to coaching in Counter-Strike. What I quickly learned, though, is that, uh, one, you can't, because to be frank, the, the type of people that you're working with, let's say at Tesla or Google, have basically, they're, they're like the best of the best, just like the pro players are in Counter-Strike, but they've also kind of ground up, they, they kind of grinded their way there, meaning like they went to school, right? Most of them went to like four universities, maybe got a graduate degree somewhere else. They have like similar qualifications as you. They're thinking along the same lines as you because, you know, most, most universities in America kind of have like a certain way to do engineering, for example. Uh, so you have that and you can't, you're basically working with a bunch of people that think very similar in terms of the, the kind of engineering aspect of it, the business impact of that uh, constantly. And that is not the same at all in, in esports, right? A lot of these esports players, uh, you know, maybe they finished high school. And this isn't a negative against them, but the fact, the fact of it is a lot of them kind of barely finished high school. Most of them did not go to college. And the way that they understand, is this work or is this fun? And is how do you get them to change their habits when they've never had that kind of real life work experience or they haven't kind of gone through that grinding of, of going to school and, and finishing, finishing college and like, you know, getting that discipline uh, if they haven't also had not done any sports growing up and they've never had that structure at home or on the field uh, somewhere doing sports, they really, they're, they're just someone that they now see that, okay, they can turn gaming into their, into their profession, but they don't really have any of the life skills to kind of have the discipline or, or have a process to get better. Uh, so what I quickly learned, uh, a long way to say basically, what I quickly learned is that 
first I need to understand the kind of the human aspect of who are who is in my team. Which five players do I have? How do they interact with each other? What are their personalities? Uh, how do they need to be kind of in uh, you know given feedback to? Uh, it's all like a very like psychological and personal aspect of coaching that I think I mean not a lot of coaches talk about, but it's definitely probably the most important thing to being a coach before you even start suggesting improvements or before you even start saying like, hey, we can we can do this a little bit better as a team. Here's the data that backs it up. Uh, uh, this is this is why I think we should do it. Even before you get all of that, you need to understand kind of who is on your team as people. So again, I think that was another kind of important point of my career or life even where I, I needed to realize like, hey, this is not the same type of people I've been working with for the last, you know, six years, including school and 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 my, my work experience and whatever. This is something that is completely different. I know where I want to get in terms of how I want to use data, how I want to suggest things as a coach, bring in learnings from Tesla and Google for sure. But to get there, I need to first decide, okay, how do I want to talk to the people on my team? So I think that was, that was definitely the biggest learning from my first year as a coach uh, on TSM. Was it infuriating very often or were you able to keep like a cool <laughs> head? How, how did you handle it? Because as you say, definitely a huge, huge contrast for you. Yeah, I think it was it was definitely a big contrast, but it was a good contrast in the sense that uh, these are things that I took for granted. How if someone gave me feedback uh, at work, I kind of realized, okay, well, it's coming from a good place. That's the first element of understanding: should I listen to this feedback and and kind of make it into my own, take the good from the feedback and the good from what I already know, and mix it to to be a better you know coder or whatever it is. I knew where that feedback was coming from, and that it was coming from a good place. That aspect of knowing that feedback is coming from a good place is totally not there in esports because a lot of these a lot of these players, like I said, they they don't they don't know. They if they hear feedback, it's just like they get into this defensive mode because they haven't experienced this enough in life, to be honest, right? And combine that with the fact that if players didn't have the best kind of structure at at home and like childhood growing up. Uh, where maybe they have some issues with authority already because of how they had been given feedback in the past. And this is something that, you know, created this huge opportunity for sports psychology to come up alongside coaching around the same time because it was not easy to get your team to work with each other until you understood why the individuals were the way they were and how to help them kind of overcome those internal struggles. It does seem to be the most difficult thing and I've, I've had a lot of people who, who who said to me like oh you know why don't you try playing in a team and stuff like that because you know everyone who i don't know listens to me or has, sees me streaming or stuff they know that i want to compete although my background is quake but um <laughs> but i always say like like look the the hardest thing about competing is not being super sick at the game it's actually finding four or five you know whatever the team limit is uh, like-minded individuals who can all interact in a, in a way that is beneficial socially. And it's very difficult to find because even if you have five guys that get along in Counter-Strike, are those five guys with the same vision? Are those five guys that work in the same way? Are those five guys able to actually communicate in a way whereby when one of them is not happy about something, like is that one guy, is he the kind of guy that's going to bottle it up? Is that going to come out later and then he's going to do it in a way which is very 
um, I forget the term, but basically he'll, you know, be, be angry and at something, which isn't really the thing that he's angry at. Like there's, there's yep. so many small intricacies when it comes to yep. kind of like navigating that social environment and finding five people to stick with and having that, that is very difficult. And I think we've seen it so many times. Like I, I see this sometimes in ECS when we're casting, like you see a, you see a team that comes up and it's just, it's five players. None of them look particularly super sick mechanically or something but they just work incredibly well as a team. And you can tell that that's five people that have, have found themselves on the same page and, and are, you know, adhering to the same practice schedule and are all working towards a common goal. And it's, it seems way too rare. Um, yeah. so, so a question I would ask you is for anybody who is kind of really in this, in this predicament where they really take it the game seriously, maybe they themselves aren't, aren't the, necessarily the best teammate, but what would be the best tips that you would have in terms of how they should conduct themselves or the values that they should have if they want to be a professional and want to increase their chances as much as possible to 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 find what they're looking for yeah i think i think this is this is a really really important question to kind of get on the same page on uh, just because i think if you compare this kind of esports or, or trying to get, get you know get basically noticed in esports with let's just say getting really good at basketball or something like that. What you say during that kind of come up period where you're trying to get good in basketball, no one really remembers. You're not posting on the internet. You're not tweeting at people necessarily. It, it doesn't stick around and people just kind of forget what you say on the court, right? Because it's on the court. It's kind of, you know, it just floats away. People don't remember if you said something in the heat of the moment as much, but if you're doing the same kind of thing in esports on the internet where people can, you know, tag it to you for the rest of your career, it's something that you that I think people that are trying to get bigger in esports or potentially be a pro, uh, you know, pro at least, you need to really think three, four times about. And that's like the biggest thing that prevents up and coming players from getting picked up in the pro scene is the first check that any org does, right? Let's say Cloud9 wanted to get a new player. The first thing that they check is like, does this will this guy improve or you know make our brand image worse? And if the answer to that is already it will be worse, you're not even gonna get in that discussion of hey, let's maybe try this guy out. And that's such a sad truth because a lot of these players, I think they're they're great in this kind of semi-pro scene, uh, maybe even below that, right? Like main and above, I would I would say. They have a lot of potential, but just the stuff I see them say on their ESEA page or on Twitter or, you know, from just stories kind of floating around about what they've said on TeamSpeak or Voice, whatever it is, it's the biggest, I think, hurdle for them. And it's just because, well, how are you supposed to know as a, as a 13-year-old that what you say is going to come back and like you have this reputation now and and like, what do you do? I actually do have a solution for that. If you are, if you do find yourself in that position where you've you've said some dumb stuff in the past and like people know about it and you can't really get past it, your only real way to still be a pro is go back, create a team that they know who you are as a person now and they respect who you are now and just grind your way up. And that's actually what you started to see. I'm not going to name players, but a lot of a couple of you know breakthrough players in the last uh, couple of years in the NA scene, they had to do that because. Uh, no one would pick them up based on their reputation. And yeah, that's that's really the only way you can still be competitive and, and try to get into a pro team is that just do it yourself and you know, get four other people in Counter-Strike at least and make a team. If you have to start an open, start an open. It's a, it's 
if you guys are good enough in three seasons, you could be an M, you know, whatever it is, like semi-pro or, or pro, uh, do it, do it the hard way. Uh, so if you're in that position, all hope is not lost. Keep working on your brand image. Don't say stupid stuff and do it yourself. Wise words. I hope people, people <laughs> listen to them. Um, it is, it is a really interesting, uh, issue because we've had this, um, this era now whereby people are, uh, teams are actually considering, I feel like the younger talents more and more. And that seems to be a shift, uh, from a couple years ago where you're, you'd have to be a, an incredible standout to be somebody that's a young player without the experience to get given the chance to have a shot at the, at the big leagues on one of the big teams. And, you know, the two first names I always think about are, you know, Robson Stewie. Like these are the two, I think, first generation CSGO players that were given a chance to play at the top level. And they honestly were exceptional, like very, very special players in many respects. And, and even still, you know, we, we, it took a while for, for teams to start looking at the younger players and trying to draft them up. And now it seems like it's kind of gone the opposite way where everyone is, is, is definitely sick of recycling players that have the experience and everyone wants those super mechanically gifted young players that are coming up. But they're not all like Stewie or Rops. Like Stewie and Rops are, are very, very, very intelligent players in their own way. Although, um, you know, Rops was, was everyone thought he was cheating to begin with as it happens mostly, most often when uh, a player comes up quickly because people, you know, don't think it's possible that someone could get good so fast. And then you have, you know, Stewie where he had a really negative reputation as this like kind of crazy pugger and which probably worked out for him because there were some hilarious memes that came out of that. But <laughs> um, since then, you know, we have all of these teams scrambling to find the the young talents. And we've had, I think, you know, let's, Tens is probably a good example of somebody that was picked up. And then, you know, we had this situation whereby he was then released because it, he didn't fit in with the team. Do you think that he was ready? Do you think that people are kind of putting too much focus on kind of uh, just expediting um, young players onto the pro teams? Do we not have enough academy teams for these players to get the relevant experience they need? Or, you know, where do you stand on this, this issue in the scene at the moment? Yeah, so with, with Tyson, tens. Uh, I think the the biggest downfall for him, at least right now, was the fact that he got thrust into the pro scene very quickly. I mean, it literally, it's it's as if like someone was playing pickup games in in basketball on just kind of at the gym, and then randomly the Lakers picked him up and it was like, hey, by the way, you're gonna be starting now. Uh, you're gonna put you in for 30, 35 minutes per game, and yeah, let's just see how you do. Uh, and he he completely kind of missed that aspect of coming up grinding through the semi-pro scene, you know, for a few seasons at least, and and then getting picked up when he realized, okay, you know, what what it means to be a pro or at least semi-pro going into a pro is like eight hours of practice a day. And after that, kind of reflecting on the practice, what you could have done better. Then after that, it's like watching self-demos if you need to be getting, you know, something done, improving individually at least. And then after that, kind of resetting and coming into practice with a good attitude, right? And, and a lot of these things, I'm not saying that he missed out on, or he didn't do well in Cloud9, but there are things that he would have had a much easier time doing if he actually kind of went through the process of going from amateur to semi-pro to pro. And he didn't get that experience. So anytime someone gets thrust into a situation like that, it's gonna be, it's gonna take a miracle of just things falling into place kind of by pure luck for him to be successful. And the reason I say that is, is that 
if you're tens in a in a pro team right now, you're having to learn all the things that it takes to be a pro player on the fly in the team for the first time while you're trying to practice eight, 10 hours a day. And also trying to understand why you got here, which is all what the public has been saying is like, yo, dude, you're you're sick mechanically, like keep improving that aimbots time. You know, whatever it is that he's he's been hearing, right? He's at the end of the day, he's he's 18 or something like that. He knows why he got here, or at least he thinks he knows why he got here. And that's all the stuff that he's hearing about his mechanical skill. And now he's in a pro team where he's getting kind of a, a quick education on, well, what does it actually take to be a pro and stay as a pro, right? And those, th- those two things are always going to conflict. You never know what it takes to be a pro until you get there. Unless you have a bunch of friends that you've talked to and like, you know, that are in the pro scene and, and they, they, they tell you, but this is an analogy I make all the time. In high school, everyone experiences this. If their parents tell them, hey, like, make sure you try in high school, like, it's really important. The next four years, four years of your life are, are going to, you know, determine the rest of your life. If you get to good school or like your job opportunities, if you hear that as a freshman in high school, no one cares. As a student, no one understands the impact yet. You have to go through that process, potentially fail, potentially see that other people are succeeding more than you are to then really, truly understand the impact of what you actually should have done in the first place. There are certain things in life you just don't, you will never know unless you experience it. And I think this happens not just in life, in esports as well, for sure, that you need to, like you said earlier in this conversation, sometimes you just need to fail to understand how you can bounce back and what process you should implement for yourself to make sure next time you get that same opportunity, you stay there and you excel. And this is going to be the big test for tens and anyone in his kind of same position is it is absolutely okay to to not succeed in your first pro team if you have a process that you determine works for you to get back there and this time stay. So his second chance, wherever it comes, and, I, and I'm you know 100% sure it will come because uh, he is mechanically very gifted and he's a good kid as well. When it comes this time around, you know, what I hope to see from, from Tyson is uh, someone that understands that He's here for a reason, but also at the end of the day, a professional environment, uh, a professional team needs certain things, and he's willing to kind of do all those things that that are necessary. It is. I think you you made a point before as well, um, which relates to this about the the impact of social media and having the spotlight on you pretty much everywhere. Like I, you know, as you say, like when he's streaming. You know, people are making judgments. They can see it as opposed to like the example you made in basketball where by, you know, if you're, the whole, I mean, it used to be like, the, the, I, I, there's a, fun, a famous quote about this. I forget specifically what it is, um, but it's basically the idea of, you know, whilst everyone's out partying, you know, I'm in the, <laughs> I'm in the, the gym, you know, whatever, like practicing, like shooting, like shooting, you know, a thousand three throws or something like that. And that's like the stuff that people don't see. Whereas actually people do see pretty much everything that a pro player does more or less these days. And everything is, is, uh, is being critiqued and judged and, and there's a, a public perception and there's, you know, people, you know, want to scapegoat this and that, and the way that the public see a pro team and what's going on in the pro team. I mean, there's obviously like a, a wall between them and what is actually happening, but they, they get to see a few things here or there but they don't know what's happening in the internal discussions and they don't know really truly know the personalities of the players and what's really going on uh, yet. However, you know, you're still, you're receiving, even though these people don't have the full information, you're receiving, um, uh, you know, attacks sometimes. And sometimes, you know, that, well, 
I would say generally the response to an attack is to be on the defense as well. And so that, that in of itself is, is difficult to deal with because I think that also can bleed onto the, a team negatively whereby if one person begins to get targeted a little bit, then it, it, if a team is having a bad, a bad time, then I mean, surely it's got to be the case that some players might think, you know, in the back of their minds, yeah, you know, actually it's like this guy, I can blame this guy because every, because everyone else is giving me, giving me the excuse to do it in the public. So, so, you know, it's easy to scapegoat people or, or lose faith in them and so on and so forth. And, and in Tenza's position, it almost did look like he was put in a spot where he had to defend himself, even if it didn't really make sense to do so or not. And so like these, these dynamics are like really difficult to deal with, honestly. And, um, is, is something like, you know, social media training, is that something that, or, or, or conversations around social media or dealing with the public perception, is that something that was going on in, in, the, in Cloud9 when you were part of the organization? Definitely. I think, I think it's, a, it's an area that esports organizations are getting better at. Um, and Cloud9 was definitely one of the better ones in, in that, on that front because I think they understood there are just certain things that you can't take back. When it comes to social media, there's certain things that obviously beyond the fact that you're representing a professional organization and, and things that come along with that, you're also representing yourself and your own future and your own career. I mean, there's not too many lifers in esports in the sense that this guy stays in one team for his entire career. What's going to happen when at some point all the Cloud9 players are going to have to move on? Right. And you need to have kind of this brand, you need to have integrity within the pro scene, which is probably the easiest part because generally people treat other pros with respect. And there's a pretty good kind of camaraderie between the pro scene itself. But what you don't have is that no one else in the management side of other esports organizations that you might potentially work with in the future know who you are. And you know, if if this tradition of kind of getting a general manager and a coaching staff and a director of a game keeps standing up even for a counter-strike the decisions are, of rosters are not generally going to be made by players in the future it's going to be impacted of course by player opinions of but it's ultimately going to be made by the you know the general managers and the coaching staff and uh who is in charge of that team just like traditional sports so it's really important that you carry yourself with integrity and you can't learn that unless you experience it and that's, I think that's like the diff most difficult part about our scene right now and esports in general is that you're starting early, you're getting picked up in the semi-pro scene early in your life, not even in your career, in your life. So you're skipping a bunch of potential valuable and, and you know, experience you can't get anywhere else. And now you're suddenly having to get that experience while being in the spotlight. And if you, if you mess up while being in the spotlight, it, it, it just sucks. And that's where I think it's going to be important for players to be supported and be around people in these esports organizations that can help them overcome it and say, this is how you should be approaching this situation now because they haven't gotten, they haven't received this guidance in life yet. Not even in esports, just in life. It's, it's too early for them in, in their life to just know the right things to do unless you're just someone that, I don't know, there, there obviously there are exceptions, right? There are obviously going to be exceptions to this rule. People, I, I definitely know people that were, when they were in their teens, they were already acting like adults in, in, in ways of decision-making and things like that. But those are the exceptions. Uh, even me, I mean, I wasn't one of them. I, 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 didn't, I didn't necessarily know how to handle my finances and, my, and my, you know, make proper decisions and things like that until well into my 20s. And that's when you, know, you refine it over the course of your life. 
that's just how life is. So, so to help them on this path uh, is something that esports organizations are definitely investing in, but definitely even way more room for improvement there from a from an org perspective. And and one thing you know we we talked about previously was was about the value that that you adds in terms of your background in in data science and engineering and analytics in you know, all of that. And you know we, we've been kind of talking about some of the newer challenges of like, moving into the esports world. Um, but with with uh, coaching a professional team, um, obviously there's so many different facets to bringing value to these players that you have. And we were talking about the social components there and like dealing with youngsters and stuff. But there's one thing that you know professional players struggle with. Everybody struggles with, um, and that's that's performance. You know, if if we could all play at our peak performance, our peak level, um, we, you know, the top of our skill ceiling, a hundred percent of the time. Obviously, that would be great, but but of course, that's not how it works to be a human being, and that's that's I mean one of the fascinations of of you know the competitive domain is is how do you achieve that and what makes the best athlete, and so obviously I would imagine you know you would would have become consumed also by this this question um, when you were looking at the you know the professional athletes that you had at hand, and you know what did you kind of learn about tweaking performance or or spotting leaks in in performance in your players and and addressing those things. Like, what were your experiences around optimizing player performance? So, I, I think in in the pro scene, at least when it comes to Counter Strike, there there are certain things that you just all pro players kind of need to have. Uh, I think those being you are obviously disciplined enough to put in you know ten or twelve hours a day thinking or playing Counter Strike and you know, obviously part of that is team practice and part of it is individual, but how do you make those 10 or 12 hours efficient? That's a long time every single day that you're doing or thinking about one thing, right? I mean, most people, even in, in normal jobs, they're, some obviously do bring their work to home, but it's eight hours and then you're supposed to leave work at work and go home and, you know, do your thing and, and reset for the next day. For esports players, and I'm sure this is similar for traditional athletes too, uh, I think your, your work is your life. And in some ways that's good, but in some ways that is bad. So it does affect your performance more so in these kinds of kind of sports and esports because if you have a bad game or a bad day of practice or a bad match, you're not just there's no resetting easily after after that you know negative thing happened. Uh, and a lot of times, even if your team wins, but you feel like you did a lot of things that you shouldn't have done or, or someone is telling you either the coaching is coaches or your players or, or your teammates, I just say that, Hey, like, yeah, we won this game, but like, why are you doing X, Y, Z? These are not easy things to just kind of overcome uh, and reset coming to the next day. So how to make those 10 or 12 hours efficient, having a process to deal with, okay, practice happened. Okay. I need a, I need 30 minutes to just write down things that I think I did well or things that I need to improve on, or both. Getting help to get that list optimized with, through your coach or your analyst. These are the, you need this process in place, or you're never going to be sustainable long-term in the pro scene. And to make yourself sustainable, sometimes if the coaches understand this is what you need and proactively help you with it, that's great. But ultimately, the player themselves need to first realize, hey, they are a little bit overwhelmed. This is how they would need some help, or at least they just throw like, "Hey, this is what I, these are my thoughts out there." Uh, and then someone can at least, you know, either it's a sports psychologist or a coach can understand. Okay, so these are your problems. 
this is a one way that we can approach it. Let's work on it together. But it will never get there unless the communication is strong enough or you feel comfortable enough in your environment as a player to bring those thoughts up. If you always kind of keep it to yourself and you're just trying to deal with it yourself or worst case, just don't deal with it at all. This will never be kind of a sustainable way to be a professional player. And I think ultimately, I think uh, you're, the question that you asked, kind of how do you overcome this? And, and as, as a player, like what, what have I seen as well that the helps with this? The, the easiest thing you can do is think of a process, break up those 10 or 12 hours of your day into certain, obviously, routines, warm up, whatever, team practice, breaks, you know, food you know showers right like making sure you get the basic necessities out of the way and done but plan for them too if you don't plan for them you're gonna get anxious instead of instead of ordering the food or, or cooking food you're thinking about like oh, i gotta eat but then i gotta do this too and like it's it's not a good feeling you're just overall gonna be overwhelmed so create this process and this is actually something that automatic i think helped me a lot with just saying you know kind of showing me that he has a process for literally everything. This this guy is someone that is, is, he's kind of robotic in a way. I mean, it's funny. His name is Automatic, right? He he's kind of robotic in the way that like he has a process. He follows it to a T, and because he follows it to a T, he ends up being a more sustainable type of player than other pro players in the scene. Meaning, even if he has dips in his performance, even if there's dips in team performance, uh, it doesn't matter to him because he has a process that he follows. Whether he's doing well, whether he's doing poorly, whether team is doing well, and whether team is doing poorly, and to be honest, I mean, it shows up in, in the way that he ends up playing even throughout the last 18 months where C9 was not doing well. Even before that, where C9 was doing well, he's a consistent player. He's versatile, he's consistent, and a lot of it is because he spent a lot of time developing a process for himself that it may not be the perfect process, but at least he had one, and it's consistently being refined, whether it's through me and the coaching staff or a sports psychologist or himself by reflecting constantly being refined since he's been a pro right so that's in this case what four years uh of, of refinement in the process of which where he won a major right i mean this is stuff that you need to think about but it's not this is not the first or even second or third things on players minds it's like what do you mean like what what do you mean any process i just need to frag headshot you know talk to my teammates communicate and show up and that's my job uh no that's your job if you're trying to optimize for the short term right so i think this is also an area i think that data does help with in the sense that if you if you kind of i don't know what the right word is in this case but you need to take the load off the player's shoulders because a lot of what data can provide if you when you're automating this is to say like look we have the things that mechanically or strategically or even comms related we can analyze automatically to help you guys with you guys just need to think about how to reflect on what happened and how you should be getting better as a teammate as a player and just focus on that because we will take care of the rest so i think this is an aspect of where data comes in and, and, and analytics that actually help players be able to focus on the things outside of just showing up that really help them become a sustainable uh, pro player i think i think this is also at the heart of why for me i'm doing everything that i'm doing these days it's because for me like as a as someone that i'm just, i'm extremely competitive and i just love i love um i love just trying to top top you know find out okay what is the game showing me that i'm weak at what is my opponent showing me that i'm weak at who are the people that are better than me why am i not better than them 
how can how can I get there? What it was what are the lessons learned here? And I feel like pretty much everything um, about my life is kind of related to all my personal development is related to revelations I've had through performance because it's such a competitive environment. It's so difficult. And yep. I really relate to the stuff you were saying about automatic. Um, I, I remember talking to someone on my stream recently about um, a focus effectively. And, and focus is a really interesting one for many different reasons. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but but one of the, the kind of tips that I, I like to give people is, is that you, you have to, you have to be aware about what is happening in your, in your mind and in your body, which kind of sounds a little bit woo, but it's, it's about the idea of, of, you know, naming things as, as they happen, creating reference points. Um, because, you know, for example, um, I mean, everyone struggles with, with tilt to some degree, unless, you know, you're an extremely well-trained individual that understands and have, how you have all the tools in place to how to, how to deal with it so that it doesn't become an issue. But, you know, one of the things is you can kind of learn what your trigger points might be and you can kind of stop yourself before you get to a, a point where you're, you know, things are unrecoverable and your performance is affected for the next, you know, couple hours. And the way to do that is by being sensitive enough to understand what is happening outside of, you know, your performance right now. So you just got angry right now. You know, why is that? And I, and I think having that kind of approach is also how you approach playing the game because when you're really focused on playing the game your mind is very much kind of going through this checklist of things i'm doing this job because within the 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 strategy of this round or the thing that i'm trying to do these are all the decision making trees that i'm going through and i'm at this part of the, the decision making tree okay now i go to this part okay now i go to this part okay these three things could happen you just your, your mind is constantly focused and when you're talking about how automatic kind of optimizes the way he does his daily life it to me it is very it resembles that because if you don't follow that process then you're you're suddenly you're just kind of out of this system that that, that you spend a lot of time um, refining to give yourself the most efficient approach. And so, you know, what's the point then? And I think any pers person who's really obsessed with becoming the best they possibly can, it's all about having a system that you constantly refine and you constantly analyze. So I definitely really, really relate to that mindset. Yep. And I think it it's also uh, bleeds into this other idea, which is extremely important in terms of like what you're saying about rather than just being someone that clocks in and clocks out, you're somebody that kind of, you, you change who you are to match what your goals are, which is your goal being to be the best athlete possible. You have to change how you effectively recode your brain in, in terms of you're receiving all this stimulus. And let's say it could be that, you know, the common example could be that someone is frustrated um, because they felt like they had a bad performance because they looked at the scoreboard and they weren't at the top of it. They're at the bottom, even though their team won, it feels bittersweet because they had a bad performance. And now obviously, you know, if what actually matters, there are the other things that you can control, you know, your, your metrics for your good response, your, um, your instant gratification should actually be, did I make a good decision there or not? Because you have to understand that, uh, you know, your mechanics or your rather your execution of a shot might be inherently inconsistent. Now you're kind of a more of a balanced individual. And so I just love this nuance. I know I'm kind of going off, <laughs> going off on my own little tangent here, but, but, um, speaking, <laughs> I mean, all that stuff is just so fascinating. And, uh, speaking of, you know, individuals that really embody this, you know, you mentioned automatic, are there any other players that really stood out to you in terms of people that really have these mindsets or refining these mindsets as a huge priority and, 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 uh, you know, really, uh, they impress you or, or surprise you with it. 
Yeah, actually, I, I think I think Stewie's up there. You mentioned him. There's no, it's not a, it's not a mystery why he was one of the players that kind of made it all the way through from like the amateur all the way up to kind of just being thrust in the pro scene and why he was successful. Ninety nine percent of players that were in his position position probably would not have been. Um, it's definitely he has his process. He's not one that generally talks about it too much. I think there is some aspect of pride involved with it, where he kind of likes to internalize and, and be able to kind of work through things himself. But you can tell he has a process. I mean, it was it was it was abundantly obvious to, to me that uh, there are certain times where you need to let Stewie kind of figure it out himself because he is thinking about it. Right. As opposed to a player that you don't know if he is reflecting or next time is this going to get better or not regardless of what he tells you in the moment there are players like that as well right obviously i'm not going to give an example of that but i've also experienced players that they in the moment they're kind of like yes men right they're like oh yeah i should have done that better yeah my bad guys blah 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 but that stops after the conversation it's just the they say these things to make sure that the conversation does not move forward uh there's less confrontation but also there's all no change there's no long-term changes and that's also something that's obvious and not even in esports but in personal life and you have friends or acquaintances that do things like that that but you just don't see any long-term changes over time they're kind of labeled as someone that just like you can't take anything they say at face value right and you don't want to be that type of player if it's it's so much better to just say guys i I don't want to talk about this right now let me just think about this first because at least then you have this process that you're trying to work with and over time, like you said, you can refine it to be more open in the moment and as well as being reflective by yourself. But saying that you will reflect or like, you know, I got this, let's move on. And ultimately the results in the future show that you're either not reflecting or you're reflecting, but always going to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> I mean, that's possible too. Uh, that's not good to be a pro player, right? So yeah, Stewie's definitely up there in terms of another guy like Tim. Uh, I would say, to a certain extent, there there are players that people wouldn't expect, like Tarek. He has his process. He, you know, <laughs> the the peanut brain kind of, uh, uh, you know, I guess the way people see him and and the, that kind of joke aspect of it, I I can definitely see because he is a troll. But at the same time, he has a process. There's a reason he's successful. The the people that I worked with that I know that also kind of have this process, uh, but I'm trying to think: Do I know someone that has a process but who hasn't been so successful? Uh, to be honest, I, I really don't, unless I'm talking about, you know, friends I have in like the amateur and the semi-pro scene that they just, they, they don't have enough experience yet. Right. They have, might have a process, but they don't have experience. So therefore, yeah, sure. They're not pro yet, but really everyone in the pro scene that I worked with that has kind of their own process, whether it's kind of outward or not, or they're internalizing it, they've been most more successful than not. And I, I definitely think this is a huge aspect of how to stay in the pro scene and be sustainable in the scene is that it's not just about showing up and playing. I mean, even even Twists, who he was someone that me and Tim both worked with in TSM, he did not have a process at all in TSM. He's not someone that that was ready to be pro at that time. He's not someone that, uh, you know, for for various reasons, even should have been a pro. But that changed dramatically, and I'm and I'm 100% sure a lot of that is because you know he's reflecting after he's failed, and then he's reflecting and also getting support from. I think he joined you know you know Sean Garris's team after that, uh, and leading into Liquid, 
right? Who had a great support staff there as well. So it's not a mystery to me that this refinement over time made him into a better player that's sustainable in the scene. Because if he, I guarantee you, if he stayed the same way he was on TSM, he would not have been successful to the same extent. He, he, he would have gotten written off and he, he wouldn't, he would just be like this guy that's kind of floating from team to team. And the fact that he's not is such a big testament to the fact that he's kind of grown up and, and starting to understand what it takes to stay and be success, successful as a pro that I love to, I love to kind of, I don't know his full story anymore because we've, we obviously don't talk as much as we used to uh, when he was on TSM, but I, I'm sure he's someone that, uh, if someone can kind of get him to talk about what his process was, it would be very interesting to hear. I almost feel like we should start a a, a, a sort of spin-off podcast venture just called The Process, just investigating all these ideas. Because <laughs> I do think it's, it's really, really interesting and very... Right. Um, I mean, one of the reasons why I, I do my podcast is because I feel like a lot of people don't talk about a lot of these like, different ideas. It, it reminds me, you know, it's talking about this the the... Uh, processes that Swiss went through and you know how he became the player he is today and you know you were mentioning the support he got in Liquid when I spoke with um I did a podcast with Zeus at the London major and and it's not that I never thought that Zeus was the real deal or something but it's it's one thing to to see a, a coach you know doing interviews and stuff and then it's another thing to sit down with them for a couple hours and then talk about like sports psychology and then realize that actually you know you get to really get a, a huge huge insight into the depth of their understanding and passion behind that specific area. And at that time as well, the London Major, I mean, it's, it wasn't too long ago, but everything is so new in esports anyway that, that um, you know, I think that was actually just about when sports psychologists first started appearing onto the scene in, in terms of uh, uh, um, the, the top level pro scene. It wasn't too many teams that really yeah. had them at that point. Um, I think really Astralis was the main team that had, had uh, were famed for it at that point and only, only really them. Um, so, so it was amazing to see that this level of detail was being put into the team. And, and at, at that point, I realized, you know, Zeus is responsible for the success of that Liquid team, who at that time were consistently the top two team. You know, sure, they had a mental block against Astralis, but beyond that, they were unquestionably the second best team in the world um, for a good year period. And Zeus built that. Like, he built that from a bunch of players that were very young and came from different backgrounds and for example, you know, famously Elige, you know, I think, you know, Elige got so much out of the system that Zeus gave and the mentorship that Zeus gave. And uh, actually, um, as a as a small yep. side point, um, I always like to talk about mentors. And it, do, do you have any any mentors um, in, in, in your life, like now actively or previously that have added a lot of value to, to your life? And what exact values did you get? Have you had from mentors? I think for for sure in different periods of my career and my life, there there have been a lot of people that I've looked up to who have who have spoken with. I think more recently, it definitely would have to be uh, other. I would say other sports psychologists, even to a certain extent, players, because they're obviously the ones that are playing the game the most. So getting mentorship from them in terms of what is the meta, why are they doing certain things, why do they think other teams are doing certain things, is it, is actually super beneficial, right? Even as a as a coach, if you think because you're the coach, you're going to be the one that knows the most on the server at all times, you're not going to be a very a very good coach. And and more important than that, you're not going to be a very good coach, and also your players are going to start to lose respect for you. So I think that was a side point on your side point actually, which was. To be a good coach, you know, don't don't think you know it all. <laughs> but no, definitely, I think I think it's a combination of players. It's a combination of I think other people that are in the space, 
sports psychologists are definitely a great kind of resource for that. Um, and just in my personal life, I think there I, I refer to my my brother a lot. Uh, he's my older brother. He also played Counter Strike. He never got into the pro scene, but he's someone that has he's very blunt. So it's good to have someone in your life that just kind of says like, hey, I don't know if the decision you're making is is that smart. And here's why I think why. And I think it's important that you have those people in your life, but it's also important that you take their feedback, take the good from it, make it your own, and then decide, okay, what is my next step? Just don't follow it blindly. Any advice you get, I think is important for players and, and people. Just don't follow it blindly. Do some reflecting on what they're saying. They're obviously taking the time out of their day to, to share their insight with you. So get some thought into it. But also, you know yourself best. So put some thought into it what you feel and how you think as well and, and take the best of both. Uh, um, and even before that, I think kind of during school, uh, I, I would say my mentors are more just my, my study group. I think it's important that you have people that are like-minded, but also different enough so they can call you out on your, on your you know, the, or at least kind of help you improve on your inefficiencies. Uh, parents are obviously a big, big deal, I think, for, for a lot of people that have a positive relationship with your parents. So there's a, definitely a lot of positive mentors. Uh, and to be honest, I, the one thing that never really affected me is I, I never really kind of was bothered by the noise of negativity, meaning I wasn't the best pro player, but I really didn't care what people said. Uh, I wasn't necessarily the best coach in the very beginning when I first joined. And I took advice from the people that were being impacted by my coaching, not other people that just thought they knew what was happening, right? So I think it's important for you to be able to kind of selectively listen to the right, uh, I guess, environment, because uh, ultimately you're just going to get overloaded if you're trying to listen and, and kind of trying to be the best person to everyone. It's impossible, right? So mentorship is definitely something that is huge, but ultimately you need to be making sure you're set up for success, which means that you need to be having a process to deal with all this feedback and also be able to reflect on yourself. Just like everything else, you need the process. And I think um, to kind of cap off this this area of talking about sports performance and so on and sports psychology, um, we, we have a lot of people, I think, out there that are, are definitely going to be aspiring uh, pro players or people that are you know young or inexperienced and as you say you know it's opportunity cost if you want to spend the time to get really really good at a video game one of the things unfortunately that you're probably gonna sacrifice in that journey is your social life to a, a some extent at least you won't get as many social experiences as you otherwise would or experiences as you mentioned um you know maybe in, in having a proper job before you get on that semi-pro team or whatever it might be so what, what, like when we're talking about understanding how to have this process, when we're talking about understanding um, how to, like, to know what to look for or the, the things to think about when we're analyzing, like what, what is the starting point for someone that doesn't have any structure, any process right now at all in just beginning to think about it to get themselves there? I think the most important thing that you can think about uh, when it comes to just getting better or treating other people or being a good teammate, being a good person, whatever it is, is this aspect of intent versus impact. If you just think about those two things when you're reflecting, if you don't think about anything else, just think about that comparison of intent versus impact. What did I do today uh, in practice, let's say for gaming, that maybe my intent was good, but the impact was that my teammate was let down because I let him 
die on rep on Inferno because I fell back too fast. But my intent was obviously to be a good teammate that round, right? So being being always kind of cognizant of what you intended versus what the impact was to people around you in Counter Strike or even in even in life is, I think, a great starting point that you don't need a therapist or a sports psychologist or any anyone to tell you to think about uh, because this is it's a very obvious and concrete thing. Like, okay, you always you always know what your intent was, whether that was good or bad. Hopefully, it's good. And you always know what the impact is. Actually, I should say you don't always know what the impact of what you did was. But if you ask other people or if you can kind of pick up on nonverbal cues, obviously through comms and like size and like, uh, you know, <laughs> mouse slamming, whatever it is, um, there, there are obviously nonverbal cues you can pick up on or you can just ask the other people or you can, you can kind of read between the lines, whatever it is. Always do that comparison internally. And then you can start to be prioritizing what you should work on so that intent versus impact i think aspect is to help you prioritize the list of things that you should be working on in the future right and it's a super easy thing to do it's a it's a it's a three words but there's three very important and powerful words to help you guide kind of what you should be spending time you're in your you're investing your time is the biggest thing you can do in your life and in to be a pro or just be a good person or teammate doesn't matter Use your time wisely, and that means you need to have some way to prioritize your time and decide what you should be putting your time toward, and this is a great way to do that. And I actually thought of another good follow-up question for the same kind of person. Um, so uh, I think this one's an important one as well, because um, there is when, in, when you're improving at a, at a video game, something that I found is pretty true um, across the board is this idea of cross-pollination, which is the idea of, of learning through experience experiencing um, a bunch of different ways of playing the game so you and you do so by being in an environment with a bunch of different players or being in an environment with better players consistently and sometimes people get stuck they don't get to necessarily play with people that are better than them because it's so beneficial to be the worst guy on the server um, very often um, as long as it's not obviously too outrageous and you can't even fight back but but ultimately <laughs> you need to be you know with people that are taking the game seriously and I see that getting stuck at a level is a big issue. People will get stuck at mythic gold or, or they'll get stuck at, you know, in their matchmaking uh, level, but they want to improve. How do they, like, what, what are ways to kind of take the next steps in terms of, you know, the, the social element of the game, um, as well as the, the, the skill element of the game? What, like, what do you do if you find yourself stuck? I think there's two parts to this answer. The first part is there needs to be kind of some structural change of the esports scene itself to, help you development it, you know part of that is how do you get into an academy team well first you need to have academy teams they need to build out well how do you get people into the academy system i mean this is other games for example like league of legends i think they have this concept of scouting grounds where it's like a bunch of amateur players uh you know then get picked up in literally the academy system for lcs and na and then from there, obviously, when you're in the academy system, you're the first people that the LCS pro teams look at when they need to make changes or you know swap between players. So that kind of development of a system of youth development to get into the scene is a structural point of view that I think Counter-Strike is kind of getting towards, but it's not fully fleshed out yet. It's actually a step behind even other esports. Uh, the good news is, is that traditional sports, as well as other esports, show that this is totally doable. and 
with a little bit of maturity of the Counter-Strike scene in terms of managing investment money properly, uh, um, potentially new leagues coming up that kind of help focus the the time of the players and, and the revenue uh, aspect of it as well, making it more sustainable. This stuff is now going to be more focused on, which is great. So that's the structural side of things that I think will help with this and get people unstuck from the system because there will always be kind of an objective or a goal that they can work towards. That being said, the second part of it to me is this whole system of pugging and getting kind of noticed through pugging or, or whether it's Mythic Gold or whatever, whatever it is, whatever your matchmaking system of choice is to get noticed, this does not exist in any traditional sports in as a, as a meaning, like a meaningful way to be picked up at the highest level of your and. I think this is kind of a mindset shift that we need to be cognizant of is that if you want to get noticed and you want to get, or if you don't want to be stuck in the system, don't be in that system as your primary way to be playing or using your time every day. Of course, do it, you know, play with your friends, play it to stay on top of your individual game. That's different, but this can't be your primary way of trying to get noticed and getting better. You need to build a team either with your friends or people that hopefully are better than you, right? You need to get on a team and start to play in leagues and then start to get up and notice that way because the way of doing it through kind of his matchmaking systems is is very inefficient if that's your primary goal as a player your primary goal for for playing matchmaking uh in whatever you know platform of choice you have is to just keep your skills sharp play for fun because your team isn't going to be available 24 hours a day right um you know build up your skill if you if you aren't skilled enough to be on a team sure this is a way that you can try to get better but at the end of the day, you know, make a team, schedule some scrims, even if it's at the, the lowest level of, of league, there are ways you can find scrims uh, and just start scrimming with, with four other people. Uh, that's how you get unstuck. It's not, no one in traditional sports plays pickup games constantly on, at the gym playing basketball and just hopes that they'll get noticed and picked up. Yeah, some people will do because, you know, scouts for different, Pro teams obviously will come. The Lakers might find someone. Maybe in NFL, you'll you'll be get picked up as like a kicker um, by just like being like good at kicking a football, right? But that's the most inefficient way to get picked up, guys. Don't do it. Get a team, make a team, start scrimming, get better. Yeah, I think I think that analysis or, or having an analysis behind the use of your time is is a really interesting one because ten hours of of scrimming with a team. It could, could, for where you are at as a player, could teach you much more than 100 hours of a pike. Yes. Um, so, so and, and it might even be stuff that translates to you being a better pugger as well in terms of if it's yep. like you're suddenly like you've just done some scrims and you spent the time researching and actually finding out how a dynamic of and timings works b between playing a two-man setup in the bathrooms on the CT side. Is that something that you maybe you can replicate in the pugs now? And then so you can increase reload or whatever. Yep. So um, it's, uh, I think it's time to move on to uh, kind of a bit more about, you know, background on, on you and, and kind of the thoughts and feelings of where you're at. Because, you know, firstly, um, you know, you won a major with Cloud9. That's a, as a coach, that's not actually something too many people can say that they have done. But obviously following that was was enormous degrees of turmoil in terms of, lineups instability and everything else which must have been an absolute nightmare so but but firstly you know before we go into that were you guys i mean i mean were you really expecting for that result to happen <laughs> that's funny because uh, not too many people have actually asked me that question which i actually i've thought about a lot and 
the, to be frank, I expected us to again to play off that major because I, we were putting in a lot of work. We were putting, we were having some great scrims, um, even at the event at at E League in Boston, or at least it was it started in Atlanta, then it ended in Boston. Those like three or four weeks, whatever it was, where we were scrimming constantly against other teams that were there as well, I think helped our confidence immeasurably. Before that, when we played phase in matches, I'm sure people remember, we were losing like 16-3, 16-4, 16-5. On a good day, maybe 16-7. And at that, at that event, not even, the, not even the final, I'm talking about the scrims that led into kind of just practicing for the major that was happening when we were playing phase, other teams. We were just like, yo, these guys, these guys are not on top of their game at 24-7. They're not these, these robots that cannot ever be beat. They're going to have their off days. They're making timing mistakes. We're beating them in scrims. That aspect of it, of just knowing that, hey, we can beat them. If we didn't get that experience during that, those four weeks where we were kind of just at the, at the event together, seeing these guys kind of in person all the time, obviously a lot of them are good friends of ours as well. Just kind of humanizing the aspect of like, yo, in the server, they're phased and they've constantly been destroying us. But look, like we can hang. We're even beating them in scrims now on an online environment. This is a great sign for our confidence. So that aspect of it, actually, our confidence literally took us through, I think, I don't forget what stage it was. It must have been like the, the challenger stage. I think it was like 3-0, I think. We went through the challenger stage 3-0. It, like, it was like the easiest three games of our lives because of our confidence. Obviously, you know, led to the legend stage where we went down 0-2, which actually was a, is a reverse kind of shock to the confidence that happened there. And at that point... I, I was actually, there, there was two or three things that happened that made me think that we can actually bring this back. Um, one was the fact that no one on our team felt like we should have lost those games. And, and we had like two or three big reasons for those both games that we lost against G2 and Space Soldiers where we knew, hey, this is what we could have done better. And like, dude, we just like lost a couple of key rounds. It's all good. That happened. The second thing is, I think it was, it must have been like a couple of players, and I remember Olaf being one of them that walked by us because um, we were in the same practice room as some or whatever. And he said something like, yo, you guys can still make this. Uh, you guys have been playing really well. Uh, obviously, we, we have been screaming them a lot. Uh, he watched our 3-0 stage as well. He was just like, I think that kind of show of confidence of one of the best players of Counter-Strike, period. Kind of just saying like, dude, you guys are better than this. Like, bring this back. Essentially, that's kind of what he what he said. It helped a lot in terms of just people thinking like, dude, like we, yeah, we definitely can bring this back. We feel like we're playing well. We have one of the best players in the world saying that he thinks we're even playing better than we are. So it's just like that combination of that kind of confidence back and forth, the plateau and the valley and like going back to the plateau at the zero two point helped again us carry us through playoffs. And at that point, I mean, I was like, dude, like, okay, this is good. We're, we're like, we've accomplished everything and more that we wanted to do. And at this point, I think every game that happened from that point onwards, it was just, uh, yeah, I think we just felt we were going to be competitive no matter what and no matter which opponent. And, you know, the games just went in our favor from that point onwards. It must be so difficult uh, when you're a coach sometimes because, for example, when you're in the finals and there's all these crazy overtimes, overtimes in of themselves, it, it's, it's, it becomes suddenly this battle of, who makes less mistakes? Because especially if the stakes are high, um, it's it's going to be a situation where everybody's feeling it to to a certain extent. It's going to be a mixture of fatigue. It's going to be a mixture of 
of excitement. It's going to be, you know, there's, there's a level of breakage that happens to the kind of cool, calm and collected visage of a professional player, I think, because because it's just such a different scenario to a normal game of Counter-Strike where things are a little bit more predictable. You know, you have, there's the, there can be, you know, maybe 30 rounds before someone wins. But with overtime, it could be every single play that you make could be the difference. Each and every single play could be the difference. And so it's such a different mentality. And for you as a coach, it's like, at that point, you can't, I mean, there's no way, surely. I was going to ask, you know, you know, was there like a way that you could prepare your players to to, to play those overtimes in the in the finals in the way that they did to win it? But at that point, I mean, you just, I guess you just have your hands off the wheel. And I mean, it must be so difficult to watch. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this this is a, this is a really good point to actually bring up the fact that the fact that data can be used to help teams improve and scout other teams is really icing on the cake. Ultimately, when you're playing the game, you're in the match, and you know the the reg, you know whatever thirty rounds are happening, you need to adapt to what's happening in front of you. And at all times, the coach should be the person that knows the most of what are possibles, what is potentially likely to happen. But the player should just be focusing on the game. I mean, sure, they've done their individual prep and, you know, the coaches shared the information with them on like most likely things to happen to be looking out for unorthodox stuff that our team likes to do or general play styles. For sure, that happens. But at any given point, out of the six people that are part of that team in the match, the coach should know what to be looking out for if he notices from just watching behind the players if the other team is doing things that he has seen in prep that are falling in line with the patterns that he expects he's ready to step in in the timeout, make that productive, right? But the players are just playing and they're adapting to what's happening. And what the coach should be doing kind of behind them is to figure out, okay, well, I'm going to take this phase Inferno game. Obviously, the last map of the finals is an example. One thing that was super clear to us during the game itself was that Kerrigan was calling in a way to get kills early on his T side for map control. And if he didn't get them, he did not have a refined way to finish the round. If he didn't get kills getting mid control on Inferno, if he didn't get kills getting banana control at B, the finishes of, of how you, they were execing kind of the, the last portion of the round was not very clean. And we, we were just like, literally, I think we called a pause at 15 9 or something like that or something around then. And we we're like, yo, guys, we we're down six rounds, but literally just take your shots mid, make some presence, fall back, hold onto your nades they will not have enough time to hit the site. Or if they do, it's going to be very chaotic. That's like the trend that we noticed in that game specifically that no amount of data or prep would have necessarily helped with. Right? So in, in a sense, I think, and that obviously carried over to overtime as well because they never really found an answer of us playing kind of passive. Um, things too, he was opting at B. We felt passive at A as well during the late part of the round. Uh, it was kind of unorthodox to play like that as CTs at the time, but it's just us, we were adapting. You know, We were adapting to what we realized FaZe liked to do, which is take aim battles. What happens when you don't get them? Well, that's when team play starts to be a little bit more important, right? The finish of the round. Um, and our team play was just a little bit better, I think, that game that day for, for Inferno. But again, this is, as a data scientist in esports, to know what the value of the data is, what portion that value comes in from a, from a stage of a team, meaning practice versus matches versus scrims versus just outside of the server, where that value comes in is absolutely critical for you to know as a data scientist. Because if you just try to shove information to players and coaches, you're 
overloading them and nothing will get used. So it's important to know that this is still a game that's super dynamic round to round. And there are patterns that obviously you can figure out. And if they fall in line with the patterns, you are quick to know how to react to that because you've the data kind of prepped you for that. Making practice more productive because you you give the coaches and the and analysts and players tools to review our own practices. Those are where the value of 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 how to utilize data comes in and and kind of getting a little bit scientific with the game. But yeah, I think the aspect of you gotta play the game too. And you gotta react to what's happening in the game. I I really love this idea because I think one of the things you're you're touching on here as well is one of the reasons why Astralis is actually so good and so consistent. I mean, there's many reasons, and I'll I'll probably ask you a more fleshed out question about Astralis in in a little bit later on, but but um from from my personal experiences as a competitor, like I I also like I figured out one one day about just like thinking about how does my opponent want to play this match? Like, you know, what is because you know you, you always get these interviews, um, you know, that you know that you guys will hear whereby ah, you know, we just we'll just play our game. We just need to play our game and so on and so forth. And specifically what you're talking about here is um is the fact that you guys recognize specifically how Carrigan wanted face to play their get their game, and then you just denied that. Even if that falls outside of how you would normally play, it's much easier if you just fall into something like you say, like, of course you have like a passive, a, w- uh, a way to play passively, like already built within how, you know, you, you guys understand how to run setups because you've got to have that uh, versatility at the professional level. Um, but, but for example, in my case, I was against a, a, a player who's one of the best aimers in the world. And he, he, I knew, I knew that he likes to, like, he wants to attack. And so I knew all this, of the timings that normally, like, I would have to attack against anybody else. And I just didn't do it against him, even though like that could be considered really minus EV minus EV against any other opponent against that opponent specifically, it created like a psychological problem for them because they're used to getting something and now you're starving them of something that they're used to getting. And especially if you're against someone, an emotional player or players that don't aren't like Astralis where they have many layers to how they can adapt on the fly, then you're going to completely break that opponent. And uh, so I really like that concept, and I think I think that it just goes to show that that again, like having that focus of being dialed into the game is is really really important. And uh, I like how you know you know you have it, it's I love the story that you have of bringing in this three hundred and sixty degrees of understanding, and you even have the playing experience, which to have that fit in, as you say, like that the timing had to work out for that. So that's kind of that's pretty epic. But moving past the kind of glory of that, <laughs> winning that finals, obviously everything fell to pieces um, in terms of the lineup. Like, what was your part in all of that? Were you, was that something that surprised you? Did you know that it was coming? And, and you know, how, how was it trying to rebuild? I actually have thought about that aspect of the timeline more than just kind of how we did well at the major. And the reason is that we needed to learn something from the last 18 months because the worst case here is that the last 18 months happened as they did and we continued i'm not even saying on c9 or outside of c9 but as people and as players as coaches the same as if we did everything right or hey we were just constantly getting unlucky with the type of players that we could or couldn't pick up or whatever it is there are obviously circumstances out of our control but if you always think about what was out of your control, you're never going to really improve or be able to adapt if a similar situation happens again in the future. And I think for us, what we could have done better in the last 18 months is 
expectation setting. And I'm, I'm starting there because I think it's not something that happens enough in the Counter-Strike scene yet, which is like, we had just won a major. At the time, uh, our first roster change was Stewie left for SK or MIBR at the time. And our initial goal was obviously, even subconsciously, it's not what players or coaches are thinking, but subconsciously it's like, okay, we lost a fifth, let's get a fifth. And let's try to play at the same level that we had just been playing at. And, you know, what we didn't spend enough time focusing on is that even with our major winning team, we had two or three kind of instrumental issues that we needed to fix to be a sustainable top five team, even if you had kept the same roster with Stewie, Skadoodle, Tarek, you know, Tim and Rush, right? And it's kind of like we did, we had a huge result. And it was in our minds what we needed to fix, but what we needed to fix suddenly got disrupted because now we're changing the roster. And I think at that point, it would have been really important for us to step in and say like, hey guys, we're bringing a new fifth, but we still need to address these issues we already had. And if you don't, we're going to not be able to play at the same level, or even if you do, it'll be kind of lucky. So that's the first thing I think we, we kind of failed on. And the expectation aspect of it is that because our expectations for for we kept basically slotting in players, you know, first it was I think FNS for Stewie, and then it was I want to say it was Deco after that, and like uh, there was like a few different things. I think Skadoodle retired later that year. I think Tarek left for MIBR as well. Um, we picked up Golden Flusha, Refresh for a bit. You know, there, there are a lot of lot of things that happened, and none of the players we ended up picking up besides probably that Flusha pickup really felt like, hey, we're going towards like that major winning lineup again, in the sense that I'm not, not taking anything against from the players that we picked up, but we picked up the players without the expectation that we needed to rebuild and start over from scratch. And that expectation that was missing amongst the players, management, and even myself at, at certain points, was I think probably the biggest failure is that we're, we're essentially trying to rebuild a team with the expectation that we're still trying to be a major winning team. And those two things do not align at all. Uh, and I think that was probably the biggest area of improvement, top down, literally from, from upper level management all the way down to the players and support staff. It's someone needed to step in and just say, guys, we need to, we need to make a full rebuild earlier. I mean, we eventually did that, but that had, should have happened way earlier. And to do that, you need to reset the expectations of what it means to be on Cloud9 at the time. Um, and yep, I think that's definitely probably the, the biggest learning lesson of the last 18 months. Yeah. And I, it's, it's very understandable how difficult that, that had to be just because the cloud line brand is, is one of the biggest brands in esports period. And the level of fandom, I think, I think that team, that team just, it was magical, you know, is it, and everybody, people who weren't already fans, which was pretty much everyone already would have become fans of that team just because there's just something special about it. It's just, there's just this quality to it that was just electric. And, uh, you know, you, you had just players that were very explosive. Again, it didn't look like that, that the team had necessarily like the best strats in the world or, or anything else. It just looked like there was five guys who were extremely gifted at the game. They weren't playing again, like super multidimensional counter-strike all the time. It's just, it just, they looked like they're on the same page and they were in terms of, I think branding as well. I think players like Stewie, players like Skadoodle, and 
you know, having some of these guys on the team just it just was a great forward-facing image for the Counter-Strike team of Cloud9. So yeah, I can understand, you know, there's so much to kind of like how do you fill those holes? It 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 I can see that that would be extremely difficult to attempt. And there are a lot of other teams now kind of not facing exactly the same dilemma, but kind of going through that. And I think, you know, complexity might be one of those in a, you know, it's, it's slightly different, the context behind all of the roster changes that complexity is going through, but they're going through like a level of roster changes, which is, is somewhat comparable um, to a certain extent. Would you, what do you, what are your thoughts on complexity and their current uh, situation? I think you're absolutely right. I think the fact that, they chose to rebuild at this point and and kind of the approach they took to rebuild which is kind of just bashing their current team on on twitter you know via, via jason Lee. I, I think it creates like this level of pressure that whether it's being talked about or not in the complexity environment right now i i i hope it is i hope they're in front of the fact that like there's a bunch of stress and pressure right now because of how this rebuild eventually happened Let's talk about it. Let's get in front of it and make sure that our expectations are aligned with kind of where we want to be and break down kind of their short-term versus long-term kind of goals here. Because if right now they, you know, they got the five on paper, it has a ton of potential, right? The, the roster that they put together has a ton of potential. There's several hurdles, though, that they need to be, you know, cognizant of. One is communication across various cultures that they now have. Uh, various levels of experience as well. Poison and Ovo are the least experienced of the five. Um, you have you have even Blame F. To be honest, he's not super experienced. I mean, he's done a really great job, but he's not super experienced. Config and Rush are the most experienced, right? They might be the most experienced, but they may not be the most vocal in terms of choosing the direction of the team. So suddenly you have a you have a whole list of issues you need to kind of get ahead of, while also subconsciously the players. Feel like they need to perform because they're getting these insane salaries and also the way that you know complexity handled this rebuild wasn't ideal in terms of stress management and 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 you know people are jumping into this team they're not technically at the top of their game it's not like complexity picked up a bunch of players that are on top three top four teams so even them they're not totally ready to win all the time because they haven't experienced it themselves yet as players in, in their previous teams. So there, it's a really volatile situation right now that I really, if I had to give complexity management some kind of advice right now, I, I would say every single day or whenever there are reviews happening, make sure you stay, you say that it doesn't matter right now if you're winning or losing as long as we're improving and you're better today than we were yesterday individually and as a team. And the rest will happen. They need to keep reinforcing that or this can get really you know, volatile and, and all over the place very quickly. Yeah, I think that's a good point. The lines will get blurry, won't they? It's like two different objectives, um, winning now versus winning in the future, two extremely different um, ideas and things to work towards. Actually, you mentioned Rush uh, as one of the more experienced players, and I think he's a player that has come under some criticism um, in the complexity lineup. Obviously, in the in the Cloud9, the major winning Cloud9 and the and the and the Optic team that he was a part of, the two incredible uh lineups of players, and he was, you know, an integral part of those teams. And obviously he's been one of those guys like Automatic that's been kind of uh along for the ride, as it were, kind of trying to rebuild, trying to find that success again, trying to tackle this idea of having the identity professionally, 
after winning that major of being like one of the best players in the world, you know, one of the like part of one of the best Counter-Strike teams in the world to suddenly just a dramatic drop off. And I think from an identity level, like speaking psychologically, that must be quite a difficult thing to kind of try to understand reasonably. And, you know, Russia's at this point, I'm sure he must have been through a bunch of different roles on the various iterations of the rosters that he's been on. And now he's on this complexity roster. Do you think, like, what, what are your thoughts of Rush as a player? And what are your thoughts of him um, on this complexity lineup? I think Will is is a is one of the best teammates that I've ever seen and and coached. I think ninety five percent of the time he's someone that you want on the team. And I think what ended up happening with him is that he thrives in a situation and environment where he has four other players that are kind of doing things that help guide him. He's not going to be the type of player that kind of proactively suggests what to do mid round, and that worked actually great in our major winning lineup because Tarek is someone that is very assertive. Uh, he actually had trouble with that initially uh, when he took on the IGL role, which is funny, a separate separate discussion. But he ended up being very assertive. Tim and Stewie are two of the best mid-gamers in the world. And you you have those two voices. And now you have Skadoodle, who if people peek him, he's going to hit his upshot. And until that happens, he's one of the best support players that I've ever worked with uh, as an opera. So you have all these kind of elements where you have three people that are being assertive. You have one person that's supporting those assertions that's, you know, that in, in terms of Skadoodle. And then you have Rush, who's kind of filling in the gap. But it's a very kind of small gap every single round. It's a different gap every single round, but it's a small one because you have all these other, the other four players kind of picking up the rest of it. And in that environment, Rush, when he has that focus, he knows what he's doing this round. It's not necessarily he's being told what to do, but he just knows what the the gap is. It, get, it kind of gets uncovered during the way that the round plays out, the comms that he hears and things like that. He is really good in that situation. So what ended up happening, I think, after that major winning lineup is we had more and more gaps being uncovered every single round because of various different reasons. And he did not, he wasn't yet kind of versatile enough to be kind of this guy that was a timorous Stewie. And that's okay. And you don't need that on every single team. If he doesn't need that on this complexity team, I expect him to be just as successful as he was on the major running lineup. Uh, but if that's an area of his game that he's been trying to improve on actively, and obviously this is feedback that as as a coach, you know, I was constantly giving him is like your responsibilities are growing and it's because the type of players we can pick up are not a one for one fit for the people we were losing at the time, right? So that created obviously kind of some issues for him because he's having to adapt a lot. You're not going to ask someone that's like Tim, who is doing a really good job at his role and what he's already doing a good job kind of mid-gaming to suddenly change his role. You're going to try to ask the people that have areas of improvement, who have kind of potential to, to be really good at something else that they're not a specialist yet, but they could be. So that's a lot of responsibility was asked of Rush for that, uh, which requires a lot of kind of reflecting, a lot of time, a lot of practice individually and just kind of demo watching and stuff like that as well. And I just think that kind of caught up to him. There was just too much going on for him. And he wasn't necessarily in the best kind of state of mind either in terms of he just feels like this whole roster changing thing just happened to him in his last team at that point, which was Optic, right? He had to deal with that. Then now it's happening in Cloud9, and then you know he's expected to play at the same level, but now he's also expected to tack on more responsibilities. And yeah, I, I think it, it was just a little bit too much for him. So I hope that 
he has kind of more focused responsibilities uh, on this current lineup because I do think he he can be a really big asset. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that he doesn't necessarily get a fair rap, and it's it's understandable. People don't. Again, we kind of mentioned it before the the what the public sees is 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 not going to be. They're not going to have all of the information. Um, but I do. I am sensitive of the time because I did. Uh, I did say you know, around ninety minutes. We already hit that. So there are a few things, if you don't mind, that I'd like to to quickly hit uh, before we Definitely. close the podcast. Um, so uh, one of those things is in terms of the current state of the game. Um, you know, we have the the Krieg, um, very powerful. Maybe if the Org wasn't nerfed, maybe no one would be complaining. It's hard to say, but it has fundamentally changed how the game is played. What are your general thoughts on the Krieg? I think uh, the Krieg definitely needs to to change a little bit um, in the in the sense that if it does get into the hands of the CTs, as I've I've seen a, lot, a couple of people mention this, but it just becomes like a such a different kind of game, and it's very hard to now deal with the Krieg and an op on the CT side, and potentially you know they're doing so much damage up front. They're locking down areas by themselves almost that it's so difficult to advance at a certain point and and t sides get extremely kind of difficult at the same token if the t's have all krieg's and they're just like jumping around and you know the first bullet accuracy is is just obviously insane on the krieg it creates a lot of problems so the way it is it definitely is a problem even if the arc went back to how it was it would still be a problem because the, the part of the issue is that when the CTs get a weapon like that in their hands, that this game becomes very not exciting to watch, to be honest. And and there's still problem with with the T's having it too, because it's like the first bullet accuracy, the recoil is extreme, but it's controllable to an extreme as well. So I think the biggest thing I, I think I suggested this when I was when I was kind of with you guys on on ECS is that just make the damage like the Galil and just see what happens from there onwards, because. At least it'll give the CTs or whoever is facing the creep a chance if they miss their first shot or if like the first bullet is off. Because in every other gun, the first bullet is off besides like the Krieg and the op. You still have a chance and people aren't getting these random headshots and like the fire rate is insane. But worry about changing those other things later. Just change the damage a little bit to make it a little bit less, you know, uh, it, it, you're you're not going to get away with as many kills, basically. Just make it like the Galil and see what happens. Yeah, that that rate of fire is it, it is like in every single category is so so nuts. Um, yeah. So, what about the the competitive map pools? Because this is something that you know, for me personally, I feel like did you did you follow StarCraft actually? Yes, I did. Uh, do you follow the like the beginning of StarCraft two as well? Not so much the the beginning, to be honest, but it is more kind of. Towards the last, uh, you know, few years, I've, I've more been into in, invested just because I, I think the game is super skillful. But anyway, go for it. Yeah. So I think I think personally, the way I would like to, I, I think the map pool is a little bit antiquated in terms of how we think about uh, building competitive maps and having a really awesome map pool for the most exciting games. And to me, I think the most exciting games. I think it's a one for one thing. It's like you have the most exciting games if you have extremely high quality maps. I think that's fair enough to say. And I think the, obviously like how you define what a high quality map is. Now that's obviously what we have to kind of discuss. And, and then through that criteria, I feel like certain maps uh, for me personally are not high quality in the current map pool. And I guess a very quick way for me um, to explain that is just, I feel like the more options that you have, the better. 
um, on either side. But it's a little bit more complicated than that because there is a, I think also understanding how to manage risks is really important in terms of Counter-Strike maps. For example, um, I like the example of Overpass because Overpass is a map where as the CTs, the, ro uh, the rotations are not as punishing as they are on other maps. So, you know, what is, what is the impact there? Well, it's, let's look at Dust2 where it's the opposite. On Dust2, if you try to make an info play, like the punish, if you are to be punished, is so severe that you might just lose the round um, for, to tr for trying to get some information. And I feel like that's too severe of a punish. So it just creates a situation of paralysis for the CTs. And so that for me means that the game becomes more one-dimensional because you're punishing, your certain risks, risk-taking is, is overly punished. Um, so for example, a map like Dust2 would be a prime candidate for me where I'd be like, I'd like to at least change it in some respects or see it out of the map pool. Um, so that's kind of about how I look at maps and the map pool. Do you think we're in this era, like in the beginning of StarCraft 2, where they were making maps, competitive maps, in a way which they just they just didn't get it yet. They didn't understand how to make high quality competitive maps. Yeah, I think there, there's definitely a lot of points you mentioned there that it the the map pool, if you're if the map ends up being played only one way, or at least it can only be played one way effectively, and that's who you, you brought up as a great example of this, you're probably not hitting the mark in terms of what a competitive map should be. And the, the best type of maps are the ones where you have several options on both sides, and not a single option will be the deciding factor of the round. What you want is the mid-game to be the deciding factor of the round. And in the mid-game, if certain things happen and like both teams have information and they're making a, a good decision based on the information that they have, and info plays play into that, right? Punishing or getting away with an info play should help you get into a better, more high percentage finish for that round, right? That metagame of the mid-round, late round. If you can get to that point and it feels like there could be like this potential for kind of seesawing, but there's not like this like instant reaction that now you know exactly how to win this round. There's percentages, but they're not totally in your favor. That's the beauty of a balanced map. And you definitely, to me, I think a good example of that is probably Overpass, probably even the old cache to a certain extent. I don't know how the new cache is going to play out. To me, bad examples are probably, I, I want to say Dust2 is definitely a bad example. Even Mirage, I'm not a huge fan of. There's a lot of mid-gaming that does happen, but it's just such a it's such a big map that there's like these hot spots that if you do die, it's just like you know what the setup is going to be. Um, so I, I would like to see more maps that have this element of being able to seesaw. Inferno actually, I think, is a great example too of, of a map where you can seesaw effectively and the, the match gets extremely exciting. That's why Inferno is one of the, you know, it's like a third map in some of the biggest matchups in, in history and the most exciting ones going all the way to the beginning of, of, of CSGO. Uh, even the map is slightly different. So yeah, definitely map pools are, it's, it's okay. I think there's enough maps to create exciting matchups. I think even Nuke being like a map that was constantly refined to the state that it is now, is, it was a good sign. And I think Nuke is a great map now as well. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't like Vertigo. I don't like Dust2. Not a huge fan of Mirage either. Um, and even trained to a certain extent. So that's four, that's four maps, right? <laughs> in, a, in an esports, competitive esport that I'm not a huge fan of for various reasons. Uh, that's not a good sign. We're like 50% of the way there, maybe 60%.
Gotcha. Is there any, like, what about some, like, if you could make, if you were in the developer seat for a day, you know, and you could change, you know, a couple of things, what, what would be the things you would change about Counter-Strike? I think, I think first, first and foremost is stop trying to make every gun viable. I think that's, it, Counter-Strike has never been about that. What it's been more about is economy management, which now we're going far and far away from. And it's been about the mid-game, late-game meta. And we're kind of straying away from both of those things a little bit. It's, if you, you can notice in the play where it's like teams like Furia, teams like kind of Explosive, even our major winning team, um, everyone kind of besides Astralis and even maybe Liquid to a certain extent kind of rely on like this CSGO kind of, no one has ever seen this in previous iterations of Counter-Strike, like the CSGO-centric like explosive play style of like getting a kill and like dominoing into the site and like that aspect. It was never, it was never existed in other iterations of Counter-Strike really. It was like the, the late game meta was like always like pretty structured and like it was exciting to watch if you can make the best decision based on the info you have really only astralis and liquid really do it consistently at this point and it's cool to see that they're having success with it um because that means it is possible but the map pool changing will definitely help with that maintaining economy should help with that as well because the the value of your life becomes more important uh you can't just get away with buying cheap guns that are extremely powerful uh you also expect certain rounds to kind of help. They're, they're kind of, at this point, every round could be competitive. And part of that is because of the explosive nature of maps to get to close the gap and things like that, right? And sometimes you can close the gap because of the map, not because of the utility you're using. And I'm thinking about, you know, what if you can just get close enough upper B on Mirage and just explode out upper B with, with the well-timed flashbang, you might just win the map, uh, win the round, I should say. There are times where utility, I think, should help you close the gap, but not the, the way the map is itself. So focus on that as, a, as well as a map developer. Uh, as much as possible, try to make the mid-game the biggest part of how to win the map and the, how the rounds are playing out. And that will make me super happy. And it'll take us back to kind of the roots of what separates CS from the other FPS games out there, which is economy management, the meta of the mid-game, and just the value of the value of your life, I think info plays, both losing and winning those battles are just as important to the meta then and it helps you kind of decide how the round should play out. Uh, and right now we're kind of straying away from that. Okay, well, I think that that kind of will close the chapter on on um, CS a little bit. For now, I want to uh, finalize this by just asking, you know what are you? So now you've you've joined EG and you're you're doing all the data things for them. Uh, what is what are we going to see you doing? Uh, you know what is what you know where will you be present in in terms of um, let's say um, EG and you know we're going to see you working a lot with all the other squads in EG and are we going to see you working with their, their CS squad much? Um, what kinds of stuff are you really excited about? Yeah, I think I think this is a, a chapter of my life that I'm I'm definitely super excited about and partially it, I couldn't have gotten here without the experience from Counter-Strike, from coaching, from playing. Uh, but I'm now I'm excited to kind of branch that out into other games as well. Uh, I actually have been getting more familiar with League of Legends and Dota over the last year as well. Uh, but probably the areas of focus probably for EG will be Counter-Strike, League, and Dota 2. And it's exciting because there, it's not just about, I would say if you had to break down kind of what an esports data science division should look like, 
you should probably think of it in terms of kind of one aspect is in-game analytics for sure like you need to be able to scout the other teams look at tendencies patterns and have suggestions in your mind for if they fall into those patterns during the game that's that's like that goes without saying yes and that's kind of competitive intelligence you can you can branch it that's the first area the second area i think that you really need to focus on is making practice more productive and these are all the tools uh, I'm not going to go into kind of what those are, but think of tools that help make the review process for pro teams more efficient, easier to kind of, if you want a player to look at all the man up situations that they were a part of, that they kind of ended up doing the wrong thing on. Right now, you have to kind of go through like VODs and demos and like find them yourselves. And like, you know what I'm saying? Like th that aspect of being efficiently able to review will do two things. One is allow players to actually do then because they're easier to kind of get at Two is make coaches and analysts who are watching the game and practicing with the team every day be able to focus on what they're seeing not taking notes all the time so there's there's several things in that area that realm of making practice more productive that needs to be done that we will be doing at eg that i think i'm super excited about and the third aspect of it is you need to be able to keep a pulse on up and coming talent so roster analytics, uh, scouting new talent up and coming uh, at any given time by taking into the priorities and the strengths and weaknesses of your current roster. Do you need, if you need to bring on a new player or a change, prioritizing the list of players available, whether through buyouts or free agents that hit the targets that would fill in the gaps of your current team is so impactful. So you don't waste time kind of looking at players that maybe are great players, but they don't help your team, right? How do you stay on top of that automatically and keep a pulse on that? That's the third aspect that I think I'm super excited about as well. And we're actually dealing with a lot of that for our league team right now because EG is coming into LCS this next season. So building out a roster there is, is huge. So throwing some analytics there, which we're already doing, which I'm already a part of, I'm super excited about that. Uh, and aside from all that, those three areas of kind of in-game and, and review and things like that. It's just like the, the other aspect of it is just making the business side of it, you know, making it more sustainable. Uh, if if Coca-Cola comes in and wants to invest in esports, how do you tell them that a dollar with EG is worth more than a dollar with the Lakers? That's a hard question to answer. So those kinds of business-centric questions and, and value questions are, are definitely other interesting aspects of using data in, in esports that, We'll just make the scene more sustainable, right? I think that's the whole goal here, and I'm, I'm super excited to be a part of that. Well, I think that's uh, that's a great place to stop. Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed it, and uh, honestly, there's uh, there's actually a lot of things I didn't know about you, and uh, you know, through doing a little bit of background on on before coming into this and and hearing you talk, you know, it's it's uh, I think I'm just I'm just very happy that you are in the position that you're in doing the kind of work that you're doing and I'm definitely going to be asking you uh, questions and maybe even inviting you back on the podcast to talk about it cuz as you say you know esports is young and and uh, you're in a, a position as a pioneer of of the data world which is super super new so exciting stuff so thank you very much for for jumping on the podcast Thank you so much Dan it's it's been a pleasure and uh, I love I love kind of these conversations so feel free to might be back and just uh pinging me about anything that that you're curious about i'm super excited that we have people in the scene that are also kind of pushing the envelope forwards and making esports into a more sustainable industry and i think that's kind of the goal for all of us is we want this to stay 
not just for the next five, 10 years, right? This is something that we want for the next 100 years, like traditional sports has been. And the only way to get there is you need to build it out system by system, keep creating a youth development program, use data to make good decisions, uh, play the game, teach people to be good people, not just good players. And these are all things that I think you're you're also in charge of, that you're, you're part of, that I, I, I love to see it and super happy to be uh, part of it as well. Thanks, man. <laughs> all right, man. Thanks, man. Cheers. Thank you guys for listening. I hope you loved the podcast today. If you'd like to support the podcast, then you can do so by liking, by sharing with your friends, by leaving me reviews on whatever platform you listened on, and by generally spreading the words. Now, if you'd like to go a step further and support the podcast financially, you can do that too. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash DDK Esports. Thank you very much. I look forward to making the next one for you. Cheers. Cheers.